Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Ben Hall and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Allegations of high-level corruption have convulsed the Mediterranean island state of Malta and shocked the rest of Europe. Public anger has been unleashed by dramatic recent developments in the investigation into the killing of the investigative journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia in a car bomb attack in October 2017. Here with me to explain what's going on are Josephine Cumbo and Michael Peel. Joe, you know Malta very well. You have lots of family there and you were there recently to report on the recent events and you're familiar with the case of Daphne Caruana Galizia. Can you tell us a bit about her and what she was investigating at the time of her killing? Daphne was described as one of Malta's most important, visible and fearless journalists at the time of her death at the age of 53. She ran a popular blog and it was called Running Commentary, which investigated allegations of corruption and other criminal wrongdoing, which allegedly ran to the highest levels of government and business. And she did so without fear or favour and she upset a lot of people at the time of her death. She had dozens of libel cases against her and her family was subjected to threats quite frequently due to her reporting. Now, in October 2017, she was just minutes away from her home in Malta. She was driving when a bomb exploded in her car. Since then, Malta has been rocked by allegations of who ordered and who undertook the assassination Months before her death, she had been investigating a company called 17 Black, which she alleged had links to Maltese politicians. She was not able to identify the owner of this mysterious company. But after her murder, leaked emails showed that 17 Black was due to make payments to people very close to the Prime Minister of Malta, Joseph Muscat, and that was his chief aide, Keith Shrembry, and Conrad Mitzi, who was the energy minister at the time. But more importantly, the investigation showed that 17 Black was owned by one of Malta's most prominent businessmen named Jorgen Fennec. Now, before her death, she was trying to find out who owned this company, who owned 17 Black. Just three weeks ago, Jorgen Fennec was charged with effectively masterminding the murder of Daphne. So that's where we are at the moment with the investigation. Her killing caused shock and revulsion and horror across Europe and obviously in Malta itself. But the investigation sort of ran into the ground a little bit, didn't it? And the public reaction in Malta was clearly one of anger, but perhaps not quite the sort of uprising that we've seen in recent weeks. Yes. For almost two years, I would say that the investigation was sluggish. There wasn't a lot going on in the summer. There were three men arrested and charged with planting and detonating the car bomb. But the family had previously been making allegations that this went a lot further, that this was a contract killing and that there were people involved higher up in government and in business who were connected to the assassination of Daphne. But nothing was moving up until the middle of November when a taxi driver was caught at the airport, a sniffer dog uncovered cash, a lot of cash in his bag, and he was arrested and he was later identified or allegedly became the middleman in the case. And in return for impunity, for a pardon, he said he would tell all about what was going on and what had happened with the killing of Daphne. And at that point, he implicated Keith Shrembry, who was the Prime Minister's chief aide, and also 
the chief businessman, Jorgen Fennec, in the killing. He accused them they both denied involvement. But once those two allegations came out, the family felt vindicated and people started to wake up to what was going on now that there was evidence given by this middleman. And I think that the turning point really was that the papers in Malta, the main newspapers who had been sitting on the fence in regards to the case and weren't sort of backing the family, started to take an opinion that there was a cover-up here, we needed to know what was going on. I think that really energised the population and got people who wouldn't ordinarily be out in the streets through fear of repercussions or because it is a very small island, people don't want to be seen to be doing things which might lead to repercussions out on the streets. I mean, you know Malta very well. And as you said, it is a very small place, only a few hundred thousand people, the smallest EU member state. I mean, to what extent does size matter here? Do you think it's conditioned the culture? Has it made a place that tolerates perhaps cronyism and uh, the settling of scores or the the trading of favours? I think one thing you can say about living in a small place is that everybody's involved. Everybody seems to know everybody and everybody seems to know everybody's business. And that might lead to a culture of complicity in some senses, because if you put your head above the parapet, you're exposing yourself. And from who I spoke to on the street, certainly in the aftermath of the resignation or the announced intended resignation of Joseph Muscat, said they feared repercussions if they spoke out. But what I think happened with the testimony of this middleman is that it unleashed and energised the population. And once the newspapers started doing editorials to say it's time to get off the fence, basically, and to take a stand on this, people felt emboldened to come out onto the streets. And what we saw was that these remarkable scenes in the streets of Valletta, this very elegant European capital of culture, people walking down the streets. I'm talking about pensioners holding signs saying killer government, mafia, justice, Daphne was right. They were angry and they were angry that there was a cover-up. So I think this was a really pivotal moment in terms of multi-society, in terms of them getting on the streets and expressing themselves. Michael, what can you tell us about the businessman Jorgen Fenech and his ties with the upper echelons of Maltese politics? Well, Jorgen Fenech is a very high profile businessman in Malta, and he's involved in businesses from property to energy, and indeed was involved in a joint venture which had an international dimension to run a power station. And this was a government awarded contract, and Siemens, the German company, was also involved in this joint venture. And as a result of what's happened and the allegations that have been made against him, he stood down from his corporate roles and indeed was intercepted by authorities while trying to head away from the island in his luxury yacht. So it's been a rather dramatic fall from grace for Mr. Fenech. In terms of the connections with people in high levels of government, as Joe mentioned earlier, a lot of attention is focusing on a Dubai company named 17 Black that belonged to Mr. Fenech. And it's alleged Reuters did a very deep investigation on this, that this company was expected to make payments to companies set up in Panama by two senior government officials, Keith Shembury, the Prime Minister's former Chief of Staff, and Conrad Mitzi, a former tourism and energy minister. The officials involved have all denied wrongdoing, but clearly that relationship hasn't been fully explained. And the officials, Mr. Shembury and Mr. Mitzi, have both stood down from their government posts. So there's a lot still that needs to be fully understood about the connections here and the relationships here. Michael, Malta is only the latest in a number of EU states to come under the glare of scrutiny. 
over backsliding on the rule of law. Can you just put it in that broader European context? What's actually going on in Europe? Well, this is a really interesting case that relates to this anxiety that there is, that the EU, for all of its proclamations about the values it holds and espouses and indeed spreads around the world and human rights and transparency and so forth, that maybe it's rotting from within. So a lot of the attention has focused on the autocratic creep in countries such as Hungary and Poland and governments capturing institutions and so forth. And obviously, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian leader, has been very outspoken in creating what he calls a so-called illiberal democracy. But Malta is a slightly different and more subtle and in some ways more revealing case. And the reason for that is that Joseph Muscat, the prime minister of Malta, has not taken the very belligerent approach of the leaders of Hungary and Poland often have to criticism. He's been a very, in quotes, good European, very cooperative in summits, um, has good relationships with other leaders, and at home has hailed reforms that his government has made in areas such as same-sex partnerships, which are seen as very progressive. So in a way, the criticism is, and campaigners against what is happening in Malta, what they would say is that Mr. Muscat, by presenting himself in this way, has got a bit of a free pass when there should have been a lot more scrutiny of him at a European level. And it's only now with the new commission headed by Ursula von der Leyen and what's been happening in Malta that you're starting to hear slightly stronger language from Brussels about the concern that the situation in Malta is causing, but still no tangible, substantial action from Brussels. Let's hear a clip from Sophie Intveld, head of a European Parliament delegation dispatched to Malta to review the rule of law on the island last week. We have serious concerns about uh, Mr Muscat staying in office. We have, let's say, concerns about the integrity of the murder investigation. Um, of course, everybody is innocent until proven guilty, but there are just, in, in the period, the next 40 days are going to be crucial for the murder investigation. And we don't want any risk or even a perceived risk, which is just as serious, that the investigation may be compromised in any way. There has to be absolute confidence in the process, and I think uh, when he is in office, that confidence is not there. Michael, if the European Commission has treated the Maltese case with kid gloves, do you think the European Parliament might actually wade in and possibly even initiate uh, disciplinary proceedings against Valletta? That's a good question. And, and certainly the parliament has been more activist on this, although it's not clear that that's going to move forward straight away. And obviously, Joseph Muscat has said he will stand down as prime minister in January. And people obviously sort of waiting and seeing to an extent. And I mean, there's a bigger problem here, which obviously goes well beyond the scope of what we're talking about, which is these EU disciplinary procedures over the rule of law, which have already been launched in the cases of Hungary and Poland. They don't really work for well because they need unanimity. So if you're targeted as a country by one of these, as long as you've got at least one ally to watch your back, you will never face any sanctions. Joe, what's quite extraordinary in the Maltese case is the powers, the direct powers that the prime minister there has over the judicial process. I mean, that is really quite unusual in the European context. Yes, it is. And it's the source of a lot of concern within the Council of Europe. They've called for 
reforms in the Maltese constitution, basically. The prime minister has powers, unlike most countries. He can appoint the head of the judiciary. He can appoint judges. He can appoint the police commissioner. And, of course, that kind of system opens up to claims of lack of impartiality by the judiciary and also the police commissioners and political interference. And I think this really drives to the heart of what the concerns are currently, that the longer that Mr Muscat stays on in office, that there is a risk of political interference in this investigation and, indeed, the public inquiry that is been launched. So until there is a complete separation of powers in Valletta, in Malta, I think, I don't think that this problem is going to go away and that Brussels needs to address this sort of fundamental issue with the way the country is run. And Joseph Muscat has said he will stand down in January. Do you think he will be forced out before then by public pressure? Well, I'm not sure if it's going to be public pressure. I think what will happen is that Brussels is going to have to step up to the plate to apply more pressure on Valletta, on Mr Muscat, to step down immediately. What we've seen over the past week is no let up in protests from the streets. In fact, it's intensified. We saw one of the biggest protests ever in front of the Castile, which is the Prime Minister's office, just a few days ago. But the protesters are also becoming more targeted On Monday, there was the extraordinary scenes where dozens of protesters launched a sit-in in the Prime Minister's office and they were locked in there and journalists were locked out. I can see that um, the people are fairly angry about what's going on and I don't see any let-up in the protests. But I think what Mr Muscat needs to consider now is that while the world's attention may be on Valletta, it is also turning to Brussels and Brussels' response to this growing crisis, which is social, it's political and it's constitutional. How long can Brussels afford not to do anything about this while the world is watching? On Thursday and Friday of this week, Mr Muscat is expected to attend a European summit in Brussels with the other leaders of the bloc. So that could be a pretty uncomfortable occasion for them too. Okay, thanks Joe and Michael and thank you for listening. Don't forget if you missed our recent episodes on Paul Volcker's legacy, how innovative finance could help save the world's wildlife or climate and the UK election, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.